All right, we are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to do the first 12 verses here today. Um, so I, I asked the internet uh, this week. Do you ask the internet things? Anybody else ask the internet things, right? I asked the internet, internet where, does, uh, where does confidence come from? Where does confidence come from? How do we get confidence? And the internet seems pretty intent on pushing me toward one single answer, uh, that of uh, self-confidence, self-confidence. And um, that's not exactly what I was looking for, but it did betray the world's perspective on confidence that it has to like, come from inside of us. Uh, far from wanting us to find confidence in God, we are pushed to find confidence in ourselves. And um, I know that's not just the internet pushing that on us. I know that's a reflection of our society. And I don't know about you, but I find that answer um, both disappointing and discouraging uh, because I know how frail I am. I know how sinful I am. I know how easy it is for me to drift. I know how easy it is to fall off the mark. I, I know all of that, and so if it comes down to self-confidence, um, it's game over. And in today's passage, Paul addresses the problem of a lack of confidence in God. In fact, he goes right after fear, which plays off of that, and he directs his readers to trust the Lord, and then to see, in trusting the Lord, see the overflow in their lives of that confidence being built up in them, but it is grace. It's a grace gift from God. That overflow is, is God's divine grace in our lives. And it is just, as we read this letter to the Thessalonians written like almost 2,000 years ago, it is, listen, it is available to you and me as well. If we have confidence in our God and if we have confidence in his plan for this world, the, um, the topic that Paul is dealing with as he kind of pushes them toward having this confidence in the Lord is a matter of end times things and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. Those are phrases from the text. So we have what is, again, in front of us, one of these always gripping, I know we're always interested in these things, end times teaching in front of us. I know it piques our interest. But again, we're going to look at it in the context of, of what Paul's saying drives us to have this unshakable confidence in our God. And so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, uh, first, first 12 verses, let me read this and then I'll, I'll pray for us. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
Only he who, who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Father, help us to be um, vigilant and watchful for the signs of the end. Help us to be about the business of, of being Christians in the midst of a world that is hostile and full of deceit and does not love the truth, but Father, also a world that desperately needs Jesus and the light of his gospel. And Father, that's our task, and I pray that in the face of it, living in this world and proclaiming the truth, God, we would be strong confident in you, confident in your plan. And use this passage today, Father, to, to drill that into us so that by conviction we would believe and serve you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? All right, ready for this? I'm so confident by God's grace that these four statements we're going to see coming out of the text, these are true of me. I'm so confident by God's grace that my fears, first of all, look at this, my fears are dispelled. Now, fear's a big thing, and I realize that we have this idea that there may be some people in the world who are fearless, that we have fearless people in the world. These are the people who will do anything, who will try anything, my contention is that even those people who are fearless are more than likely fearful of something. I want to make the point that everyone in this room is afraid of something apart from Christ. You know, a person may be eager to skydive or, or skydiving, at least you have a parachute, you know. But, but I think about those people, I think the thing that instills the most amount of uh, kind of like projected fear on me is watching those guys who free climb cliffs. You watch these guys? That's just craziness. But they're, they're kind of fearless in the free climbing. But get that guy down on the ground and, 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 and maybe they're afraid of relationships. Maybe they're afraid of commitment. Maybe they're not married because they can't get into a relationship with someone. It's kind of a silly illustration, but it makes the point. Everyone's afraid of something. And in the case of the Thessalonians, these are fairly new believers who are getting this letter, and Paul writes to them in these first couple of verses, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to raise this topic with you. This is like Paul's way of saying, okay, topic one that we have to cover, now concerning this thing that's going on. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in my mind or alarmed. 
Something about what they had been taught about the end times and and what they thought about it, something about that was now creating fear in them. They were alarmed. They were shaken in mind about it. And in fact, we learn from the latter part of verse 2 that some people had actually told them that the coming of Jesus had already happened. They thought they had missed it. I mean, they had Spotify on. They were listening to DC Talk. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come. You've been left behind. Right? They're listening to this over and over again, and they think they've been left behind. So Paul's writing to address this very real fear they have that they've missed the day of the Lord, and to give them confidence that they were still, you're okay, you're on track with him. Now, I want you to think about with that, the context that the Thessalonians are dealing with, but we want to take that on top of whatever we're dealing with, because it's probably not that. But what are the things that we're afraid of? True or false? Let's let's do some true or false things here and, and see if you can get these. True or false? We are often fearful of things that will never actually happen. Absolutely true. Here's the second one. We often react in fear without having all the information. That's true. And then a third one, we often default to believing the worst will happen. True. These things are all true of us. But here's the thing, that's the way people without Jesus should answer all of those. But the people who love Jesus Christ should never answer true to these questions. For the Christian, listen, For the Christian who is living, you know I love this phrase, for a Christian who's living the radically dissimilar life, that that our life is radically different than the life of those who do not have Jesus. Okay, we, we have Christ. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we are in fact the temple of God, that God indwells us. He lives within us. And for us as the followers of Christ then, 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control, or the old King James said, of a sound mind. In other words, I'm not going down the road to believing all the false things that I often believe that cause me to fear. So fear is, and I'm going to say this like really kindly, but fear is an unchristian response to circumstances. Fear is an unchristian response to circumstances. And the Apostle John said this, 1 John 4:18. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love is the love of God in us. Perfect love is I've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm walking with him. I'm following him. He's indwelling me. I have his perfect love in me. And when I have that perfect love, it casts out fear. And whoever fears, here's what he's saying. This is, this is my contention that, that, that fear is an unchristian response to circumstances because whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I'm not putting anyone down. And 1 John's one of the hardest books to read in the entire Bible. It's very, very 
black and white categorical pronouncements. And I'm not putting anyone down because if, if you struggle with fear in a big way and you can be a Christian and struggle with fear, you can be a Christian and struggle with anything, amen? Okay, maybe fear's not your thing, but it's something else. But if you struggle with fear in a big way, my sense is that you would admit this. You'd, you want to be done with it. You don't want to be fearful. And so you're agreeing that perfect love casts out fear because that's what you want. You can't wait to get to heaven and on the other side. And if it's been a lifetime of being fearful and lacking confidence, you want to be done with that. And you want to get face to face with your Savior so that you can gaze at him and, and know what it feels like to be afraid of nothing. And when you have that attitude inside of you, you're agreeing with the statement that it's unchristian to fear the circumstances around me. That's an outflow. That lack of fear is an outflow of our confidence in Christ, which comes as a result of the grace of God. All right, I'm so confident by God's grace. That's the first one. My fears are dispelled. Here's the second. My discernment, my discernment is high. And when I'm confident in God, I can sort through, I can discern, I can think correctly. That's a, a good phrase to write down. I think correctly about trials, about difficult circumstances, about teaching that I'm hearing that could be false. And Paul says, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. This is verse 2. He says, either by a spirit, three things he says here, either by a spirit, by spoken word, or a letter seemingly from us, the us is Paul, Silas, Timothy who have written this letter, to the effect that the, Lord, that the day of the Lord has come. So he's addressing direct spiritual warfare where demons somehow are influencing them. I don't know if that's like this inner fear that's saying, I think we missed the day of the Lord. I think we missed it. You know, just welling up from inside, just the evil one influencing. Or some, some itinerant false teacher has come through town and said something that's wrong, or, or bogus letters have arrived. And in the simplest terms, what Paul is saying right here in this verse is, you're going to want to write this down, don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything you hear. And in 19, uh, 2019 vernacular, that's uh, hashtag fake news. That's what that is, okay? A lot of fake news out there, Paul is saying. Or as uh, Abraham Lincoln famously said, the problem with quotes on the internet is that it's very difficult to verify their authenticity. <laughs> so to the Thessalonians, he says this. Verse three, let no one let no one deceive you in any way. So how do, we, how do we avoid being deceived, especially at a time when fake news is very common? And we're heading into a, you know, um, a federal elections coming up in a few months in, in our country, and um, already I'm seeing ads that I'm, I'm watching an advertisement on television, I'm just going, that is not true. That is not true. You, you, are, you are making things up 
and, and we need to buckle down and prepare ourselves for an onslaught of half-truths that are interpreted in the way each of the parties wants us to hear it. How do we avoid being deceived? Let's, let's, let's work toward ensuring that for that day, Remember, they think they've missed that Jesus has come. That day will not come. Paul's going to fill in some of the blanks here. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, this is the Antichrist, is revealed the son of destruction. Verse 4, notice this. Who opposes, this is so important, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. I'm better than every other truth system that's out there. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God. A lot of prophetic stuff going on there that you can also read in the book of Daniel, Matthew, Revelation. Takes his seat in the temple of God. Here's the key. Proclaiming himself to be God. Now that is the essential quality of the deceitfulness that we see in the world today that that the lies exalt themselves to a place of authority, the lies exalt themselves to a place of supplanting God as sovereign. And that can apply to everything we hear today. Want me to run through a few examples? Yeah. A few, let's, let's just, these are hot buttons. Ready? First one, the pro-choice pro movement. The pro-choice movement exalts, so here's the deceit that's going to come, exalts women's rights. The welfare of the woman exalts that above the rights and the welfare of the unborn child. We all understand that. They place themselves in the role of God determining which of those two lives has greater value. But we know that even the preborn child is created in the image of God. That God himself is knitting that child together in the womb. That God has ordained the life of that child. We know that. But all of those things are also true of the woman. The truth of the matter that we have to stand for is that the followers of Jesus Christ, the word of God, and God himself is pro-woman and pro-child in the womb. We are pro both. Both are created in the image of God. And, and so we're working through the deceit of a world that is now exalting itself into the place of God to tell us what we ought to think. Here's a second one with uh, made medical assistance in dying. We are already hearing of instances where pressure is being put on people who are in deeply distressful situations, distressing situations. We are he hearing of them having pressure put on them to consider medical assistance in dying, even though that is not their wish and they've never raised it themselves. And let's be honest, folks. Again, this is putting ourselves in the place of God. This is our society placing itself in the place of God. And let's all understand, if you know anything about the medical industry, this is 100% a budget issue. The cost of keeping someone alive, the cost of care, is driving our values. It's deceit. It's exalting themselves into the place of God. Here's a third one. The, uh, they're, they're not getting easier. 
regarding the gender issue. A God has determined there are two genders. There are two. Sin has corrupted the gene pool. Sin has corrupted this world. We live in a sin-tainted world. Therefore, we fully acknowledge that there are those who suffer from gender dysphoria. No one is denying that. We also recognize that because sin has corrupted this world and corrupted our physiologies, we also understand that there are some physical anomalies that may happen with regard to the gender issue. But again, government has decided and put themselves in the place of God that these are not aberrations that happen in our culture, but are to be acknowledged as legitimate genders so that I was just reading that New York City has acknowledged that there are 31 different gender designations, 31, that people can choose. Here's a fourth one. Sexual ethics. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Daryl Dash, he's a pastor down in Toronto. In, uh, he has a, a church in Liberty Village. And he, was, he wrote an article this week, Gospel Coalition site, talking about sexual ethics and uh, really um, our sexual identity um, as uh, an apologetic for the Christian faith. And when he was encountering new people coming to his church, he, he thought through, you know, they're going to ask theological questions of me, and really the only question that he hears, or the, 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 um, the one question he hears more often is one about what's the church's position on sexuality. It's a moral issue, it's not a doctrinal issue. They want to know what the church's position on it because our society has now elevated this to the highest level and said that God has no business or God is not interested in what happens in uh, the bedroom between two consenting adults. And that has now elevated itself above what God would actually say about sexual ethics. Now listen, um, I could say a lot more about all of those, but those are just four quick examples. Uh, really, uh, that's just me poking the dog this morning, but this is society proclaiming itself to be God, challenging God's word, challenging the established order of creation and our discernment. This is the point of, of, of this part of the message. Our discernment needs to be on full alert. So how do we get there? And Paul says this in verse five, notice, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Well, that's the key to it. Paul says, I taught you this. I opened God's word. I, I told you the gospel. I, I, you know this already. And what I gave you, I want you to take that and I want you to test everything else you're hearing. Whether it's a demon-inspired spiritual thought, whether it's a roving preacher or something you read, whether it's a letter that arrives in your inbox, you need to test it. And if it doesn't match what I told you, what I've taught you, if it doesn't match what's in God's word, then you must reject it. That's discernment. That's thinking correctly about what you're facing and what you're hearing. We need to do this. Listen, young people, high school and college students, you need to do this in your classrooms. We definitely need to do this with absolutely every word you read on the internet. 
Don't forward things if you don't know it's true. Don't like things that you haven't tested against God's word to see if it's true. We need to think correctly. And this is so important because now go down to verse 9. We'll come back to verses 6 through 8. But verse 9, this is why this is so important because the, the days are pressing in upon us. The coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs. And, and want, false signs and wonders, verse 10, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth. Isn't, that's, that's our culture today. That phrase right there, refusing to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Verse 12, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's our culture. They like their unrighteousness, so they're rewriting the rules. They're establishing a new God. And unless we're well-versed in the Word of God ourselves, unless we, verse 10 says it, unless we love the truth, then we're going to struggle to discern what's right and wrong. In the age of the lawless one, the Antichrist is going to be characterized by deception and when I hear that, I think about all the things that I read and, 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 and the, the, my lack of confidence in it being true. And I, I, I understand that so often when I'm reading things now, my spiritual spidey senses are going off. I'm asking the question, can I believe this? What can I believe? And the age we live in has been called an age of disruption. We've talked about that in previous weeks, other series. It's not just an age of disruption, it's an age of deception that we live in today, where people play fast and loose with the truth to serve their own agendas. And this is the natural result of teaching relativism. In relativism, it is true if it is true for you. And yet I love the truth and I know that's wrong. It's not true if it's true for you. It's true because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Nothing could be more nonsensical in this world than it's true if it's true for you. Jesus said, uh, John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not you will invent the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth. And to the extent that you commit yourself to knowing this book, to the extent that you commit yourself to that, you will have confidence in Jesus Christ, confidence in your walk with him, and your discernment will be high. And you'll sort through all the deception that's out there. Here's another. When I'm that confident in God, my faith is firm. Okay, back to verse 6. Paul says this, and you know, remember he's writing a personal letter now. Paul, Timothy, Silas are writing this letter. They had been to Thessalonica. They got kind of shooed out of town. They're writing a letter back to them, actually a second letter back to them. So they have personal experience of being with the Thessalonians. And you can see that in verse 6. You know what is restraining him now. Paul hasn't talked about that at all. But obviously when he was with them personally, he taught them about this restrainer. You know what is restraining him now, this man of lawlessness, so that he may be revealed in his time. 
So Paul's assuming some prior knowledge on their part, and he doesn't explain himself here. So we don't know exactly who or what is the restrainer. We don't know that. There's lots of interpretations on it. What we do know is that the evil activity of the man of lawlessness is being restrained. So that for us today, there's evil in the world. We're all aware of that, correct? There's evil in the world today. But it isn't yet the full court press of the end times. It isn't quite that because the restrainer is holding back the man of lawlessness. And Paul acknowledges that. He's verse 7, he says, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There's some of it happening. Only he who now restrains it, who or whatever that is, will do so until he is out of the way. And then we're going to know exactly who this lawless one is. We're going to know exactly who the Antichrist is. We're going to find out for sure if it's Oprah or not. Okay? <laughs> Just kidding. It's just getting like a little serious there for a second. I just needed to lighten it. See, the thing is, I'm not super interested in dissecting the particulars of the end times, and there are people who have argued that Oprah was the Antichrist. There are people who argued that Stalin was or Hitler was. You go back in history, and when this was first being written, they thought for sure it was some of the Roman emperors, and we've gone through, again, almost 2,000 years of history, and we know none of those answers was the right answer. And that actually makes the point that we don't want to be diving into the particulars of what is being said here. That's not the point of what Paul's teaching. He's trying to, to, to correct a misunderstanding, reverse deception that's happening, and boost their confidence in God. That's his point. And as our church has grown, by the way, we've attracted people from, from all different denominational backgrounds. We are truly a non-denominational church. We have many who have come from no denominational backgrounds, from no church background. And what has become very apparent over the years is that we bring a variety of perspectives and beliefs on the end times and how it's all going to play out. And there are some here who haven't got a clue what I'm talking about right now because they're so new in Jesus. They didn't know there were any other views. And as I have taught repeatedly over the 18 years that our church has been going, what is essential from all of the apocalyptic passages is that we understand that we are to be ready no matter when it comes. Amen? We are to be ready no matter when it comes. We are to affirm loudly as all Christians should that Jesus Christ is indeed coming back. Amen? Jesus is coming back and that no one can assume the timeline but God alone. And over the last several months, our elders have actually undertaken to, we announced this at our members meeting on Thursday, but we've undertaken to revise um, and to um, tighten up and better explain our doctrinal statement and we're going to present that to you really soon. It's, it's coming toward the end of the project. But one of the things that we did on the statement concerning the end times was to make it uh, broader and less specific to a certain perspective on the end times because it's essential that we understand that solid, Jesus-loving Christians can disagree on this point of how it's all going to play out but can still be in community together can still do ministry together, 
can still be on mission together to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen? What we agree on is that Jesus is coming back, and we need to be ready for that. And so, that's what we need, to be most interested in what Paul is saying here, full confidence, full confidence in the face of what will be very difficult days. And that in those days, our faith can be firm because we know that God is in full control of the events. God's in full control of the people behind the events. In essence, who or whatever the restrainer is, ultimately the restrainer is either God himself or is an agent of God. God is the one who's in control of all of this. No one is doing anything until God says so. Not even Satan. And certainly not the Antichrist who becomes the face of Satan in the events of the last day. One of the commentators that I'm using throughout this series, a man by the name of uh, Michael Martin, said this, peace and assurance come not from a full knowledge of the times and seasons. In other words, working out all the details of the end times, it doesn't come from that, but from a personal knowledge of the God who rules the times and the seasons. Amen? That's spot on. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ himself and not in figuring out all the particulars. My faith is firm And finally, I'm so confident by God's grace that my sights are set. The lawless one's days are numbered. Verse 8 continues, the Lord Jesus will kill him. Now, this isn't exactly Jesus meek and mild, okay? I don't know if we, we have coloring pages back in, you know, Harvest Kids with, you know, Jesus coming and killing the Antichrist, but that wouldn't be inappropriate. Uh, depending on the age level. This isn't Jesus arriving in, in the manger. This is Revelation 19. This is Jesus is the rider on the white horse and he's coming to make war. Notice that he comes. The Lord Jesus will kill him, verse 8, with the breath of his mouth. The, the, the English word breath in, in Greek language the New Testament is written in Greek, is, is pneuma. It's the same as spirit. He, he's going to kill him with the spirit of his mouth, the breath of his mouth, and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He, he, just, he just shows up. Jesus just shows up, breathing, and the Antichrist is done. Now, that's a God I can trust, a God who just shows up in the room, and it's enough. And all of that happens by virtue of what happened on the cross, by by the power of the resurrection. It's because of that that Jesus is able to kill with the breath of his mouth the fact that death and the grave are defeated. And we need to take comfort in that. And in fact, we need to take comfort in this because we, we always think about this in terms of the timeline and, and we think about the past and we think about the present and we think about the future and we think about these end times thing as, as something that has, has not yet happened. And yet when you read the book of Revelation and you read the apocalyptic passages and you see the visions that John saw or the visions that Paul saw or the visions that Ezekiel saw and, and what you're realizing is this isn't just a storyboard where God has mapped it out and said, you know what, this is kind of the way I envision it happening they're seeing completed events 
It's already all completed. And as human beings, we're stuck down here on a timeline playing out these few days and years of our lives. But listen, folks, it's already all over. And Satan is already soundly defeated by the breath of his mouth, by his very presence, the appearance of his coming. We're just waiting for it to happen in our minds, on our timeline. And when we set our sights on Jesus, what that means is that we're about his business. For however long you leave me here, Jesus, on this timeline, I know the whole thing's already played out. It's already finished. I'm confident in that. But you got me here for now. I got I to gotta play some part in this. So I need to be about your business. I need to be doing the thing that you've told me to do. I need to set my sights on Jesus. I need to, this is Hebrews 12 too. I need to fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I need to fix my eyes on Jesus. I need to take up my cross. I need to follow him. I need to despise the shame of it when I oppose a world that tells me I'm an idiot for believing what I believe. And I can do it because I've set my sights and my eyes are fixed on him. G.K. Chesterton wrote a hundred years ago and he said this, the world stands at the same stage as it did at the beginning of the dark ages. And the church has the same task as it had at the beginning of the dark ages. To save all the light and liberty that can be saved. To resist the downward drag of the world. And to wait for better days. I think we're noticing that our world is spiraling down quickly. And what Chesterton, Chesterton says to us is prophetic for us. And the three things that he identifies are critical. Notice that we would first save all the light and liberty that can be saved. Whenever possible, we need to preserve the righteousness of God around us. We need to influence the world around us. We need to be, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to be salt and light influencing the culture, influencing the people in our lives for good and for the gospel. Secondly, he says, we need to resist the downward drag of the world. In other words, personally, don't give in to temptation. Personally, commit yourself to holy living. Be holy even as I am holy, the Lord says. To be countercultural in the moral choices that we make. To be like Jesus himself. And third, and this is really the whole point of this passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, to wait for better days. Not the false hope that the politicians preach of a better world here, but the eschatological hope of Jesus coming in the kingdom of God on earth, a new heavens and a new earth. And when you have your sight set on Jesus in that way, your confidence will soar. That's available to every single follower of Christ and it's not in any way self-confidence. It is, in fact, a further gift of God's divine grace. I don't deserve it. 
I don't deserve to have this confidence, and yet I do because of what Jesus Christ did for me. And I hope every single person in the room's got it. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that just even pondering that um, great, incredible thought that the events of history are already completed. That this isn't just theory, it's not wishful thinking. We can have full confidence in the fact that Satan is already defeated, that the grave is defeated, that death is defeated. And that the hope of eternity awaits this timeline of history just just playing out the way that you've ordained. So again, Father, there's nothing taking you by surprise today. There's nothing that's happening in the life of any person in this room that is shocking to you. You've ordained it all. So, Father, I pray that each one of us would leave here today with a greater confidence in who you are, what you've done for us, and what you're going to do. And God, we would be able to sort through all of the deception of this world, cut through it, to think correctly, to think biblically about all of these things. Thank you, Father, for being patient with us as we work these things out. Thank you for your grace. In Christ's name, amen.